If you have your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and open up to Nehemiah chapter 11. We are going to get through two chapters today, 11 and 12. Uh, I'm going to get my phone out so I can see the time. Uh, And we are going to get through two chapters today because next Sunday we will finish the book of Nehemiah. Give yourself a round of applause. You've almost made it through. You do a little better than that. All right. We're almost finished with the book of Nehemiah. Um, and so we will, we will jump into the scriptures here momentarily. So if you have it, save it, uh, keep it there. We'll jump into it momentarily. But I just want to share with you, in 2017, an article uh, written by Forbes about Ancestry.com. Anybody familiar with Ancestry.com? I think if you haven't been, you probably are now because their commercials are everywhere. Has anybody tried it yet? Um, no, not yet. <laughs> we're, we're in the process. Um, okay, we, we have a group of church people that don't watch TV. Amen. I'm glad the Lord has blessed you with that. Um, so in 2017, an article written by Forbes about Ancestry.com reported, during Black Friday and Cyber Monday, Americans went online to stock up on millions of Xboxes and televisions, Barbies and Lego sets iPhones, and countless other holiday goodies. They also bought a record-setting 560,000 DNA kits from Ancestry.com. The article went on to quote Ancestry's CEO, Tim Sullivan, uh, who said this, we think we'll have 10 million people connected within two years. Now, if you go to their website, because I just started to look, I got a little bit of curious, you'll be greeted by Kelly Ripa. Anybody know who Kelly Ripa is? Why, amen. (laughs) If you go to your website, you will be greeted by Kelly Ripa. And here's what Kelly Ripa will tell you. She'll say this. There's no better gift for learning your family history. Uh, The site goes on to say that millions of people have uncovered something new about themselves. uh, Finding their origins, tracing their ancestors, connecting with relatives, and getting more of their inside story. Sounds great, huh? One customer review read this, it's amazing what our ancestors reveal about who we are and help us understand where we really belong. Now, aside from giving you probably a cool Black Friday idea, um, here's what I want to get at this morning. Uh, When it comes to the scriptures, we tend to skip over the lists, amen? Amen. You ever been reading your Bible and got to that place where it was so-and-so begot, so-and-so begot, so-and-so begot, so-and-so? We tend to skip over those lists, and guess what? I don't blame you. (laughs) These lists are long, they're tedious, and they're full of names like, are you ready for this? They're full of names like, because I don't know if I'm ready for it, they're full of names like Mahalalel, Bakbukaya, Hashbadana, last week we called it Hashbrownsarna. And my personal favorite, Bunny. And praise God, Bunny got saved. Tigra, we're still praying for her because she likes the boom. Amen? Somebody got that. And all of my 80s people said amen. (laughs) But as... (laughs) But as... We got to pray for Sister Tigra, amen? But as unfamiliar and hard to pronounce as they are, uh, these lists are real names of real people and real events. In fact, 
If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, Nehemiah is full of these lists. Um, Chapter 3 gave us a list of those who repaired the walls. Chapter 7 recorded the names of those who returned from exile. Chapter 10 was a list of leaders who added their personal seals to a new covenant of obedience in response to God's word. And now here in chapters 11 and 12, more lists, more records, and more names. But if you think about it, in the same way Americans are now spending billions to scroll through endless amounts of databases hoping to find meaning, generations of Israelites did the same in books like Nehemiah, but with one big difference. These records and these lists were not just a means for self-discovery, but they were testimonies of God's faithfulness to his people. You see, when an Israelite went back through the list of names that you and I can't pronounce, they went back through it not only to find out who they were, but to worship the faithful God who kept his covenant promises throughout generations. Now, can you imagine what these lists communicated to that generation? Can you imagine what this list communicated to a generation of Israelites? Can you imagine when they saw these lists, what they would think and what they would say? I mean, look at dad. Look at how he moved into Jerusalem when everyone else was unwilling to go. Look at grandma. She was willing to get her hands dirty and rebuild the walls of the city. Look at great-granddad. Look at how he led the people in worship. Look at how he signed his name on a covenant of obedience in response to God's word. I wonder what our future generations will say about us and the goodness of God. I know what mine will say. Grandpa and his father before him and his father before him served the Lord. They spoke the Lord's words and they were willing to get their hands dirty to build his church. Now, I don't know about you, but the legacy that I plan leaving behind to my children is not a legacy of money or material possession, but a story of God's faithfulness to me and his glory being shown through me. I wonder what the next generation will say about what you did for his kingdom. I wonder what they'll say about what you were busy with. I wonder what they'll say about what you put your hands to. I wonder what they say, what would your dreams of success look like? And I wonder if that dream, I wonder if that busyness, I wonder if all the things that you do in your life, the generation will look back and worship the Lord. I wonder. And so this morning, we jump into chapters 11 and 12, and sure, it will be an endless amount of names. But if you look deeper at the story, these names Tell something, tell us something about the goodness and faithfulness of God. And so let's pray and let's jump into the story. Heavenly Father, will you, Holy Spirit, will you burn a desire and a passion inside of us for your glory? Will your words this morning speak? Like only you can speak. Will you take my words and and will you translate them, Holy Spirit, so that every heart and every mind could walk out of here with something just for them? Well, I pray there would be those that would leave this morning and say, I feel like you were just talking to me this morning. So, Father, I pray that you would anoint your word. 
anoint your vessel for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Chapters 11 and 12 contain two major lists. A list of repopulation and a list of rededication. And so for the rest of today's message, I want to observe these lists and share with you what they reveal about Israel and most importantly, what they reveal about the God Israel serves. And so we jump into chapter 11 and we're going to read verses 1 and 2 momentarily. We see a list of repopulation. And last week, we briefly touched about this. I shared with you last week, there was a new challenge that Nehemiah was facing. You see, the walls have been rebuilt, but nobody wanted to move inside of Jerusalem. And so chapter 11 opens with a brief explanation of how Nehemiah repopulated the city. And then it goes on to give a long list of tedious names, hard to pronounce, of leaders who moved into the city. And so let's read Nehemiah chapter 11 verses 1 and 2 right now. We should have it up for you here on the screen if you don't have it with you on your lap. It reads like this. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. Now, let's stop there. These first two verses give us three categories of people who repopulated Jerusalem. Remember, nobody wanted to live there. Nehemiah and the people of God, they had worked so hard to build the walls, but everyone's like, well, you move. No, you move. No, you go. Who's going to go? And so what you'll find in these first two verses is how Nehemiah and who Nehemiah repopulated Jerusalem with. Three groups or three categories of people. The first category or the first group of people mentioned in verse 1 is the leadership, the leaders. Now, this wasn't surprising because leaders, by nature of their position, are always expected to go first. It wasn't surprising that the leaders would go first. In fact, just a little side note, one of the qualities I look for in someone desiring to lead is their courage to do things and go places others refuse to do and go. Now, I just want to speculate a little bit. Scripture doesn't really say this, but I want to speculate just for a moment. I believe there might be two ways that the leaders moving into Jerusalem promoted confidence for others to come in. I believe there's two ways that created confidence inside of people to say, well, if they're going in, then I'm willing to go in. The first way is this. A leader promotes confidence simply because they show up. Simply by showing up and committing to the city. Now, I am sure that that inspired others to overcome their fears, amen, of showing up and committing to the city. They simply showed up. But number two is the leadership stabilized the city. You have to think about it. This city has been desolate for hundreds of years. This city has been unlivable and unbearable for hundreds of years. So it was very much unstabilized. Without organized management, living conditions would remain unbearable. And the city would have no way of governing itself back to health. And so two things. The leaders showed up, and I'm sure them showing up encouraged others to show up. But also the presence of the leadership stabilized the place that was unbearable, making it manageable once again. Are you with me? There's no doubt that the presence of fully committed, God-fearing leadership inspired courage of others to move back in to the holy city. 
So the leaders went in. Secondly, number two, the second category of people. Uh, the second group is also mentioned in verse one, and uh, these were the men who were chosen. I don't know if you've caught that in the story, but we're told every 10th man of the tribe of Judah and Benjamin was chosen, are you ready for this, by casting lots. Some of you might say, what in the heck is casting lots? It's a process that looks a lot like a lottery system to you and I, but to them it was literally a representation of the divine hand of God. Let me explain. Casting lots involved randomly selecting objects like sticks or stones and then putting symbols on them and then casting them or throwing them into a small area to see how they land. They were basically playing dice up in there. Now, the Israelites not only believed this was... Uh, the Israelites not only believed that this was an uncontrolled and unbiased way of decision-making, but they also believed that when they cast the lots before God, the result of the cast represented God's will. Can you imagine that? So you just kind of throw these dice or throw these lots, and if they land on you, it looks like God chose you. I'm out. Not sure it looked like that. But let me just give you a word of wisdom today as I'm describing this Old Testament practice. Please don't get lot casting happy in here. There are some New Testament saints still casting lots, and I need to tell you, we have the Holy Spirit, amen, and we have the scriptures to guide us, so there's no need to start rolling dice on the most important decisions of your life. So if I wake up tomorrow and it rains, that means the Lord's saying this. I, I bless you, but I want to tell you, you don't have to do that, amen? Okay. There's no smoke for three days in a row. No one's ever done that. I know I have. But here's what I, the point I want to get with this second category. The first category was that the leaders moved in. The second category were the men that were chosen moved in. And here's the point. The point was that these men that moved in were chosen by God. And finally, number three, a third category. Um, they're found and they're mentioned in verse 2. And this is probably my favorite category. This last group um, were men who volunteered. I love the fact that this group was the only group that did not need to be motivated by a sense of duty or divine obligation. They repopulated Jerusalem simply because they had a heart willing to move. They had a heart willing to move. Again, let me speculate. Maybe they were moved out of passion for the mission and their love of God. Maybe they understood the bigger picture. Maybe they understood that the bigger picture was God's glory and not their personal comfort. But regardless, are you ready for this? Something greater than obligation compelled these men to move. Something greater than obligation compelled these men to move. I love it when somebody moves because they're told. But I absolutely love it when someone is moved, not because they're told on the outside, but something on the inside is compelling them to move. And I pray Inspire Church would be full of men and women so captivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ, so captivated by what Christ has done. My prayer is that we would raise up men and women so captivated by the gospel 
that their ministries and gifting will be an outflow of their willing heart and not a sense of obligation or duty. And so for the first couple of verses of chapter 11, you'll get these brief categories of people who are willing to move back into the city or obligated to move back into the city. And then from verse 3 all the way to verse 36, the tedious list will begin. And the tedious list will be a list of names of all the leaders that were entering back into Jerusalem. So let me give you a brief overview of the entire book up until this point. The walls have been rebuilt in chapters 1 through 7. Community has been renewed through the word of God in chapters 8 through 10. And if you haven't heard those messages, you can go back to the podcast. Jerusalem is repopulated in chapter 11. And now we come to chapter 12, one chapter before the book closes, where the focus turns to the rededication of the city and its walls. And once again, guess what? We find more lists, more records. Let me break down these lists to you. In verses 1 through 9 of chapter 12, These are lists of names of priests and Levites who returned with Zerubbabel 90 years ago. A little interesting side note, uh, they broke up the priest into 24 sections. And all 24 went into captivity, but of the 24 that went into captivity, only two came back. And so Nehemiah went back through a list of all those priests that had returned back from captivity and realized that of the 24, only two returned, two sections returned. And so they resectioned that 24, or they resectioned that two back into 22. Now you might ask, why didn't they do 24? Because they believe there are two sections that just ended up completely falling off the, falling off the planet. Ended up completely, I don't know what the proper word is, but they completely lost uh, uh, records and lists of the 22. I'm sorry, of the, there was 24 um, and they completely lost record of two. Are you with me? I know I might have lost you there. Go back to the podcast. Here we go. Verses 1 through 9 list the names of priests and Levites who returned with Zerubbabel 90 years ago. Then verses 10 through 47 will list the succession of high priests. And within these lists, Nehemiah will also include a description of a rededication ceremony with, you guessed it, more lists of names and roles of those who participated in the ceremony. Now, I did you a favor. I went through the list, and I pulled out two observations. I pulled out two observations uh, from this incredible rededication ceremony. Amen? So in chapter 11, you have a repopulation. Now here in chapter 12, you have a rededication. And so for the rest of our time together, I want to simply focus on two observations from this rededication ceremony. Um, So let's go, and we're just going to read one verse here. Um, Let's go to Nehemiah 12, and we're going to read verse 30. Nehemiah 12, verse 30. It reads like this. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. The first observation that stood out to me of this rededication ceremony is the total purification of the city. I don't know if you caught that there. They didn't just purify themselves or the people. They actually purified the gates and the walls. 
What struck me, again, was not the purification of the people. I can understand that. But also the purification of the literal gates and walls of the city. Now, most likely, what did this purification look like? Most likely, it involved the sprinkling of water over them as a ceremonial form of washing and cleansing. Now, this is going to be kind of funny. I remember I played basketball in high school. And I had a good friend of mine that I played basketball with. Um, in fact, I, I, um, I credit him with introducing me to the Filipino culture. So for you Filipinos in here, I have my buddy to thank uh, for helping me um, have my first encounter um, with adobo, chicken adobo. In fact, it probably wasn't even here. I stood the night and I snuck down, opened the refrigerator, saw some chicken, grabbed it, put it in the, put it in the oven, or in the oven, put it in the microwave, got it out, ate it. I was like, what is this? But after a while, I started to enjoy it. But I remember his mom, who has since passed away, um, we would play games. And before the game would start, the coach would be talking to us. We'd be on the bench. And all of a sudden, we'd just be like, what in the world is going on? And we thought maybe somebody on the stands was spitting on us. Uh, we, it, was just, there was, it was one of those things where it wasn't a lot of water, but it was just enough to know that something is happening. <laughs> and what we, when we turned around, almost with the disgusting look, what we realized was it was his mama just sprinkling us with holy water. <laughs> And she'd be like, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. She was a charismatic Catholic. And she was just thank you. I remember I would, I would shoot free throws. I'd hear my dad on one side, and I'd hear his mom on the other side thanking Jesus. <laughs> and I remember the first couple of times we were like angry after a while, like, what is it? That's just, that's Noel's mom. We're good. We're good. And so this ceremony kind of, for those of you that are familiar with that type of thing, or maybe you're just old school Pentecostal, any old school Pentecostals in here, you know, they bring out the oil, you're getting oiled up, right? You're getting oiled up. Um, In fact, you can ask my parents, they would oil my bedroom without me even knowing about it. It worked. I was like, you oiled too much. I didn't want to be a pastor. Like, you know, you over oiled. But back to this ceremonial cleansing, Uh, this was a sign of rededication and consecration uh, to the Lord. Amen? Um, What was once, are you ready for this? What was once lost in rubble and desolate was now coming back to life. A people in a city that had once been all but destroyed was now stepping back into its prophetic destiny as God's people living in God's holy city. Chapter 12 is not a celebration of completion, but it's the celebration of a new beginning. Amen? In this chapter, the people are not looking back at what God had done, but they were now looking ahead at what God was going to do through them in the city. And do you remember the big picture? God's people securely dwelling in God's city, worshiping God, reflecting the glory of God to the nations. And from that place, who would come? the Messiah would come to bless the world. This ceremony was not about looking back, but it was looking ahead towards what God would ultimately faithfully fulfill once again. A city that was left to be destroyed was now being resurrected right before us. Isn't 
this a picture of exactly what Christ has done for you and I? What the waters of purification represented here in chapter 12, the blood of Jesus represents for you and I. Come on. Weren't you a desolate city? Weren't you a person dead in sin? But wasn't Christ's blood and his resurrection an opportunity for a new beginning? And now, don't you look forward to what God is doing and going to do through you as his faithful member of the body of Christ. And doesn't he just doesn't put us back into a city. Doesn't he put us into a church, the body of Christ? And doesn't this church move in the glory of God and reflect to the nations the beauty of Jesus? And isn't this church looking forward to the day that the Messiah will come again and make all things new? The purification process of the walls stood out to me. Secondly, the praise and worship stood out to me. If you've read chapter 12, it is a chapter full of worship. Amen? Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to open to chapter 12, and we're going to look at verse 27 and 28. Um, And then we're going to look at verse 31 and 43. I'll let you know when we skip to those, but if you want to follow along, you can go ahead and, uh, re- and look there yourself. So again, total purification process, and the second part of this rededication ceremony that really stuck out to me was uh, the praise and was the worship. Let's read verse 27 together. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places, to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres, and the sons of the singers gathered. Did you know in this particular text, there's over 22 different instruments that are being gathered together? Now let's skip to verse 31. This is Nehemiah speaking. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. And finally, we're going to finish with verse 43, if you want to go down to verse 43, and I'll have the worship team prepare. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away, far away. Now, I thought as we finished, it would be a great opportunity for just music to come up because this was a musical occasion. I want you to think about this. What an epic moment of gladness and thanksgiving. Amen? What an epic moment. Can you enter into this moment? What an epic moment full of gladness and thanksgiving all led by ancient worship teams equipped with singers, instruments, and mass choirs. Can you imagine the sights and the sounds? Can you imagine the harmonies of the voices? Can you imagine the notes of the instruments? Can you imagine the powerful lyrics of the psalms being sung to God? It's from this place of praise and worship that I want you all to remember three things from Nehemiah's journey 
Hear me out. It's from this place of praise and worship that I want you all to remember three things from Nehemiah's journey. Are you ready for this? The first thing is this. Remember the cupbearer and the scribe. We're told that Ezra led the choir that went south while Nehemiah went with the choir that headed north. Never forget that both men were used by God to rebuild the city and revive the people. Don't buy into the lie that would suggest one gifting is greater or spiritually greater than the other. In this story, are you ready for this? Both the pastor and the construction worker, the cupbearer and the scribe, use their gifts to bring glory to God. Now, whether you're gifted with your hands or whether you're gifted with your mouth, in the kingdom of God, both are holy and acceptable forms of worship before the Lord. Remember the cupbearer and the scribe. Second, remember the walls that were too fragile to hold small foxes are now powerful enough to carry mass choirs. Now, some of you weren't here a couple of weeks ago. Remember that the walls that were too fragile to hold small foxes are now powerful enough to hold mass choirs. It wasn't too long ago in chapter 4 that the enemies of God were jeering the work of God's people. Do you remember? In fact, in chapter 4, verse 3, listen to what the enemies were saying. What are they building? If a fox goes up on that wall, it'll break down. Yet here we are in chapter 12 with two processions of mass choirs standing on both sides of the city, playing, marching, singing, and praising God. It's amazing. It's amazing if you think about what's going on. It's amazing how God can turn the source of the enemy's taunt into the praise of his people. Are you seeing this? This was the place the enemy taunted and said, what are you building? That's your weak place. That's a place that will crumble. If something small were to just step on it, it will be destroyed. But yet several chapters later, the place that the enemy spoke against and said it was the most fragile place in the city became the place that Nehemiah says, we're going to put choirs on these walls. Can you imagine that? Yeah. I, I, have, I have to think that Nehemiah had a little bit of an attitude. Like a lot of us want to think he's spiritual, but I had to think he was mocking back the enemy. I had to think he said, you were jeering at me and you were mocking at me and you were telling me and God's people that we can't rebuild a wall. And when we did, you said it won't hold up. We're going to give God glory. But you know what? We're going to give glory on top of the very thing that you said wasn't strong enough to stand up. I can imagine Nehemiah, I'm a, I, you know, I, I, I like to be godly sometimes, but there's also a competitor inside me. Can you imagine Nehemiah standing up and walking on the wall and looking to the people worshiping God, but then also looking back to these enemies and saying, look, we have mass choirs on this wall praising God. Remember the cupbearer and the scribe. Remember the wall that was too fragile. The foxes that couldn't go on it were now a wall full of a mass choir. And finally remember that God can take great trouble and 
great shame and turn it into great glory and great joy. Do you remember the devastating prognosis that brought Nehemiah to tears in chapter 1, verse 3? Do you remember that? Do you remember what they, what they said? They said to Nehemiah, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. Verse 4 said, Nehemiah, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. Yet here we are in chapter 12, and something is radically shifted. Verse 43 tells us, they offered great sacrifices that day. Now I want you to do me a favor, let's count joy. Ready? They offered great sacrifices that day and rejoice. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. This one verse contains the word joy five times. Now in the Bible, joy is mentioned over 200 times. But there's a particular phrase in this verse that also is a scarce phrase in the Bible, and that's the phrase great joy. In fact, you'll only see those two words, great joy, put together seven times in all of Scripture. And you'll find one of those times right here in Nehemiah 12, 43. So what is the difference between joy and great joy? I want to tell you there's a kind of joy that is normal. It's normative. Everyone can participate in this joy because God is generally good to all. So even if you're a non-believer, there's a joy you can participate in because God is generally good to all. It's a kind of joy that's experienced every day. It's a smile. It's a laugh. It's a moment of bliss regularly available to us all, whether we are believers in Christ or not. But there's another kind of joy that is greater and deeper and more profound than normal joy. It's a divine sense of pleasure that has the ability to transform great trouble, to transform great shame, and to turn it into joy, great unspeakable joy. And where others see hopelessness, this great joy finds hope. It's a divine sense of pleasure. Where others see despair and shame, this great joy sees life and life abundantly. Nehemiah refers to this great joy in chapter 8, verse 10, when he says, Don't be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Don't be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. In other words, my strength is God's smile over my life. My ability to endure even in the most difficult of circumstances, is knowing first and foremost the source of God's divine joy. And what is that source? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. He is the source. He is the Father's divine joy. When the Father looks down at His Son, He says, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. When the Father sees Jesus, He is seeing great joy. He takes pleasure in Christ. But He does not take pleasure in sin. And so when he sees sin, it's not joy, but it's wrath. It's wrath, which means humanity has a problem. Because when God looks down and sees our sin, we are deserved of wrath. But to those 
who have placed their faith in the Son. To those who have placed their faith in Christ, we can rest not in a normal fleeting joy, but in a great joy that gives us great strength to go on during times of great trouble. If you're a follower of Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, if you are a follower of Christ, but you still find yourself wrestling with and having trouble with the necessary strength and joy in your life, I want to give you some advice. Stop putting your faith into anything else but the gospel. Stop thinking on, leaning on, and looking at anything else but the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in the Son, it's in the gospel that you will find the divine joy, the joy of the Lord that will be your strength. If you're a Christian and you're weak, stop looking at anything else but the gospel. And if you're not following Christ this morning, I want to invite you to put your trust in Him, to put your hope in Him, to put your faith in Him. You too can experience divine joy that goes beyond normal joy, the kind of joy that gives you strength and transforms your great trouble and your great shame into great joy. Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord is my strength. And in the place where the enemies mocked, mass choirs are giving praise to God. And in a city that was desolate and dead, now is a city that is being rebirthed and repurposed for its kingdom call to worship God, to give Him glory, and to ultimately be the place where the Messiah would come that would give great joy to the world. In fact, Christmas is coming. And the only other place, there's seven places where you see great joy. And Christmas is coming. You know, the other places where you'll see great joy is in the book of Matthew and Luke at the announcement of the arrival of the Messiah. Great joy and good tidings I bring to you. Peace and goodwill on earth towards men. Today, in the city of David, a son has been given. And his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Jesus. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Look, if you don't know him, if you don't know him, you're missing out on an anchor. If you don't know him, you're missing out on a joy unspeakable. Yeah, you may be able to experience normal joy because of God's revelation of his goodness in general, but you're missing out on the specific joy of his son, Jesus Christ. And so I compel you to enter into this greater joy because the joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And if this morning you're a Christian, but you're wrestling, you're tense, there's all kinds of things competing inside of you that's just taking away your strength there's great trouble there's great angst I want to tell you that you have an anchor you've given your life to Christ center yourself back on the gospel center yourself back on the reality that everything is okay all is well all is well all is well you have a savior that has given it all 
It was washed you and purified you clean. And those gates that were on fire and those walls that were desolate and broken have been resurrected to new life. And when the Father looks at you, you don't have to perform. You don't have to perform. You don't have to be good in these moralistic obligations. When the Father sees you, he sees the perfection of his son, Jesus. He sees Jesus. Will you recenter yourself back into that place? And will you stop being compelled to do things out of obligation? And will you enter back into worship? Worship. Just worship our beautiful Savior. Heavenly Father, I just pray for everyone in this room. First and foremost, I pray if there's anyone in this room that doesn't know you. there's anyone in this room that doesn't know great joy. I just pray for you right now. Young man, young lady, man or woman in this room, if you don't know him, you might ask, well, how can I know Jesus? And scripture's really simple. You would just repent and believe in the gospel. What does it mean to repent? Repent simply means, will you sit here and admit, I have nothing good in my life. Even my best, my good works aren't good enough. Repenting is just admitting I'm a sinner. I'm in bondage to sin. I can't stop sinning. I can't stop thinking about sinning. I am a rule breaker. And then, will you believe that Christ is the covenant keeper? That he's perfect in all his ways that he lived a perfect life that he was pinned on a cross and he took the wrath of God so that I don't have to take it and when God smiles down on his son if I put my faith in him God smiles down on me because I'm hidden in Christ and so I repent and I know that I can't do nothing to get out of the wrath of God but believe in the gospel that's all you have to do so I pray that we'd be a church full of people who would repent and believe this gospel over and over again. And Lord, I pray for the men and women in this room that are followers of Christ, but life, but life, but circumstances, but situations has caused their peace, their strength, and their joy to become something less than great. I pray that we would recenter, recenter, refocus, refocus, refocus on the gospel, refocus on the gospel. Pray the joy of the Lord is my strength. Will you just tell yourself the joy of the Lord is my strength? The joy of the Lord is my strength. And when he sees me, he smiles because he sees his son. And in that I take joy and I get strength to face whatever it is that I'm going to face. So, Father, I bless this body. I bless this community. I bless every church in the Bay Area this morning that's faithfully preaching the gospel. Lord, may the Bay Area be multiplied. May many sons and daughters come to Christ because churches that preach the gospel are faithful to you and your word. So, Lord, I just thank you. I ask that you would be with us the rest of this Sunday. Help us to be a light to a dark world. Bring us back next week, Lord God. And I just pray you would bless us and be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Come on, church. Say amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful Sunday. We'll see you next week. Gentlemen, we'll see you at the barbecue. Let's do it.